even as I prayed at the men's conference, I ask that the message I give today would give each individual person here the feeling that you were stalking them. That you were following their Twitter and their Facebook. That you were reading their minds. That you were listening to their conversations. I pray that they would feel eerily spoken to. Because you do know exactly what this group needs to hear. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would do all the talking today in your name. Amen. One of the greatest baseball players in the history of the MLB was a man named Reggie Jackson. Reggie Jackson was a 14-time All-Star selection, a four-time American League home run champion, a five-time World Series champion, an MVP winner, and a Hall of Famer. In the 1970s, he had a great big afro when he was playing for the New York Yankees. And they called him Mr. October because he was so clutch in the playoffs. But despite all of these incredible statistics, did you know that Reggie Jackson is also the number one leading strikeout hitter in the history of the game? Nobody has struck out as many times as Reggie Jackson. Now, I could say, you know what, I'm glad I'm not Jackson because I played Little League for six years and I never struck out as many times as him. But were Reggie Jackson here today, he could say, but Ben, you've never hit one over Boston's Fenway fence and had a walk-off home run in the playoffs. You've never been a Hall of Famer. You've never been a 14-time All-Star selection. And sometimes for the kingdom of God, I say, I don't want to take any risks because what if I strike out? Listen, God has called each and every one of us to be game changers, world shapers, and risk takers. But that means we have to be willing to strike out a time or two. So you've each been given a calling. Some of you here have been called to be mothers. That is your chief passion in life. As you walk with the Lord, that is what he has given you a a, a vision to do, to be a godly mother. But you might say today, I have struck out as a mom. You might say, I feel like a failure. Now, let me tell you this. Being a mother is one of the greatest callings in the Bible. Did you know that the book of Psalms says that if you have a lot of kids, it's like your quiver is filled with arrows, So your little kids are arrows, like Legolas arrows that you're shooting at the kingdom of darkness. You raise up your little kids as a a little army of warriors in your household, and you say, go sick the enemy, kids. Go put to flight the forces of darkness. Go do a dent in the empire of evil. And being a mother is an amazing calling because you are raising up the next generation of Christian warriors. But you might say, I failed as a mom. I want to raise up my child in the ways of the Lord, but Ben, my relationship with one of my kids, it's failed. I've struck out. Others of you have been called to be godly husbands. The Bible says that men are to love their wives the same way that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And you say, Ben, I feel like a failure as a husband. Others of you have been called to be businessmen. The book of Ecclesiastes in Colossians says, whatever you put your hand to, do it with all your might, for you work as unto the Lord. 
You might say, I say I failed as a businessman. I failed as a Christian. I failed as a friend. So many times we go through our lives paralyzed because we are under the fear of failure, which keeps us from our God-given destiny. But if you want to hit home runs, you got to be willing to strike out. Did you know that Thomas Edison failed 1,000 times when he tried to perfect the light bulb? But he said, I didn't fail. I just found 1,000 ways that don't work. That's a good way to look at failure. Every failure is a step toward victory when I learn from my mistake. I have never read one biography. I have never studied one historical character that achieved great things in their own sphere of influence without much failure along the way. I had a friend tell me recently that every master artist and composer with their masterpieces also produced the greatest number of bombs. But these authors, these artists, these composers are incredibly prolific. So when they put more works out there, they're exposing themselves to the possibility of great failure. And they have many failures, but they have maybe five or six masterpieces, and that sets them apart as art maestros. The same is true for the kingdom of God. If you're going to be a game changer, world shaper, risk taker, you are going to fail along the way, but you cannot give in and you cannot give up. Psalm chapter 27 verse 13 says, I would have given up, but I believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Reminds me of what Winston Churchill said on October 29th, 1941 at Harrow School in Great Britain when he was encouraging England and the Allies to continue to put to flight Hitler's Nazi Germany. Churchill gave one of the most famous speeches of all time when he looked at his audience and he said, and I quote, never give in, never give in, never, never, never Never. In nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. I believe as Christians, that's what we need to say as we take up the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the shield of faith, which can quench the fiery darts of the wicked one, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, and the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. As we put to flight the empire of evil, as we do a dent in the kingdom of darkness, as we go hunt some demons and fight principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places, we need to say, I will never give up. I will never give in. I will never cede to the overpowering might of the enemy because I am more than a conqueror through Jesus who overcame the world. So I will not let failure keep me from my God given destiny. Can I get an amen to that? That's who the Lord has called us to be. Before we study our text, did you know that Winston Churchill also said success consists in one's ability to go from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm? That's the secret. Can we go from failure to failure without losing our passion? Without losing our enthusiasm? This is something Jeremiah had to learn in Jeremiah chapter 20. Let's take a look. The prophet is having a really bad day. 
he is overwhelmed by the amount of failure that he encounters, which is something we all relate to. We all have our own failures, but this is what Jeremiah says in verse 7 of chapter 20. Oh, Lord, you induced me and I was persuaded. You are stronger than I and have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. Verse 8. For when I spoke, I cried out and shouted, violence and plunder. Because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. Check out verse 9. Here's the key verse. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. Here's the context. Jeremiah, earlier in this chapter, had just been sent to prison for preaching. He was clamped in stocks once he even got thrown in a pit. He was beaten up. There's not one scrap of incontrovertible evidence wherein Jeremiah ever converted one person to Judaism through his decades of preaching. He's so overwhelmed by his failure that he says, I don't want to preach anymore. I'm done being a prophet. Now, how would you like to be a pastor giving an altar call every morning for 50 years and not one person ever comes forward to receive Jesus? Eventually, you'd say, maybe this isn't my calling. Jeremiah had preached for decades and not one person that we know of ever came to the Lord and repented because of his ministry. And he says, when I preach, verse 7, everybody makes fun of me. Now, I've preached for about 10 or 11 years, and I'll tell you this. I've had a lot of people make fun of me when I've, when I've preached before. I remember one time, um, I gave a message at a funeral service that upset a lot of people. And uh, some of my peers, they started a Ben Corson MySpace hate group on the internet. And I deserved it, let me tell you. I was 18 years old doing a funeral, and I was a little bit harsh during the funeral, but I learned from my mistake. I said, if you don't give your life to the Lord right now, you're not going to see your friends that just died. Now, that's something you don't say at a funeral. Do you know what I mean? I didn't know. I'm just starting out. And so they start this Ben Corson MySpace hate group, and I'm just, you know, groveling in self-pity. And I don't like it when a few people make fun of me. Jeremiah, in verse 7, says, everybody makes fun of me. Nobody's coming to the Lord. They beat me up when I preach. They throw me into a prison when I preach. They've actually thrown me into a pit after I preach. I've got too many nasty emails. I want my wife just to rub my neck and tell me it'll all be fine, but I'm done. But just as he is about to give up, after he says, Lord, you're the one who induced me and persuaded me to preach, you can read Jeremiah chapter 1. You wrote it. You remember when you told me, Jeremiah, I have destined you to be a prophet to the nations ever since you were in your mother's womb. And Jeremiah said, ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak for I am a youth. And the Lord said, do not say I am a youth. See, I have put my word on your mouth and you are going to go to whomever I send you to build up and to tear down. Jeremiah chapter one. Now he says, you are the one who persuaded me to preach and I'm done. I'm hoisting the white flag. 
I'm throwing in the towel. And right when he is teetering on the precipice of giving up, he says in verse 9, I determined to never speak in his name again. But the word of God was burning in my bones like a fire, like liquid lava coursing through my veins. I was burning with passion and I had to speak the word of the Lord. Yes, it stinks preaching, Jeremiah could say, but the one thing worse than preaching is not preaching. Because when I'm not preaching, I'm burning up with passion. I just have to speak the word of the Lord. This is my destiny. So he continues to preach to the children of Israel and to the various nations. And because he did not give up through what seemed to be the greatest failure one could encounter in ministry, he went on to have one of the greatest impacts of all time out of any minister ever. Jeremiah would go on to have an entire book of the Bible named after him. He would go on to preach one of the most powerful messages of all time, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the thoughts I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah would go on to leave such a legacy that a few hundred years after he preached, there was a penniless teacher from Nazareth walking the dusty streets of Palestine named Jesus. And Jesus says to his disciples, who do men say that I am? His disciples say, some say you are John the Baptist. Others say you are Elijah. Still others say you're one of the prophets. But some people say you are Jeremiah. How would you like to be Jeremiah right then? Sitting from your perch in the afterlife, hearing that people are mistaking you and Jesus for each other. It's the greatest compliment he could have ever got. It's like, I'm Jesus' spiritual doppelganger in the eyes of people. Now, I hope they realize he's not me, but the Christ. But hey, that's a big compliment. Girls, that's like somebody coming up to you and saying, can I get your autograph, Angelina Jolie? Oh, sorry. I just thought you were Angelina Jolie because you look just like her. You'd say, thanks for the compliment. I'll take it any day of the week and twice on Sunday. That's what was happening to Jeremiah. They were mistaking him and Jesus for each other because Jeremiah refused to quit. And let me tell you something. This is one of the laws of life that God had set up. Anybody who accomplishes something great in their own sphere of influence will fail a ton along the way. Let me tell you a few stories. There was one boy who was told by his music teacher that he was a hopeless composer. His name was Beethoven. There was another boy who didn't learn to talk until he was four. Didn't learn to read until he was seven. He was alienated at school. He had a speech impediment. Dropped out of high school. Seemed like a failure. And his name was Albert Einstein. There was another young man who wanted to start a theme park. So he goes to more than 100 banks to try to get financial backing to fund his theme park idea and vision. But more than 100 banks turned him down. Do you know who this man was? Walt Disney when he tried to start Disneyland. There was another boy who was only educated up to the sixth grade. But he had a chicken recipe that he thought would uh, be very tasty. So he, 
he creates this chicken recipe and he tries to sell it to a restaurant, but the restaurant turns him down. So he goes to a second restaurant. Again, the second restaurant turns him down. He goes to 10 restaurants, 100 restaurants, 500 restaurants, more than 1,000 restaurants turn down his chicken recipe. Now, I can't cook. All I can make is Hot Pockets and Cheerios. But if more than 1,000 restaurants are turning down my chicken recipe, I'm probably not destined to be a chef. Yet even though more than 1,000 restaurants turned him down, he kept on trying to submit his chicken recipe. Sure enough, his name was Colonel Sanders, the creator of Kentucky Fried Chicken. And you see his mug all over the side of the street. It's his face on the KFC sign. You ballers know this. There's one boy who wanted to make the varsity team as an underclassman, but he got cut. Couldn't make the varsity team. His name was Michael Jordan. I like this story. There was one politician who, who really wanted to get into law school, but he was rejected. So then he tried his hand at business, failed. Tried his hand at business again, failed. Lost an embarrassing eight elections, had a nervous breakdown, all before becoming the 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. Do you know F.W. Woolworth, one of the greatest businessmen of all time, when he was working at a dry goods store before he started his own entrepreneurial endeavors, he was told by his boss that he didn't have the business sense required to wait on customers so he should go in the back and work behind closed doors because he didn't want F.W. Woolworth to be presented in his supermarket because Woolworth had no business sense. I think of a friend of George Lucas, a young filmmaker who tries to get into USC film school, declined. Tries a second time, denied. Tries a third time, still can't get in. His name was Steven Spielberg. I mean, on and on the stories go. Who do you want to talk about? Winston Churchill? Do you know he failed sixth grade? Do you know that Churchill lost every public office role he ever ran for? And then he became British Prime Minister at the age of 62? Charlie Chaplin, did you know that When he first tried out for an acting role, the executives declined him initially because they said, he's too obscure and nobody's going to understand his performances. He became America's first bona fide movie star. This is one of my favorites. Do you know Walt Disney was fired by a newspaper editor? Because they said, and I quote, he lacks imagination and has no good ideas. I don't know about you, but these stories encourage me like crazy. Sir Isaac Newton failed miserably when he was tasked with running his family farm before he got sent off to Cambridge University to become a physics scholar. You dancers, you know Fred Astaire. Do you know during Fred Astaire's first screen test, the judges said he can't act, he can't sing, he's slightly bald, and he can dance a little. He went on to become the greatest dancer of all time. You writers, listen to this. Dr. Seuss... His first book was turned down by 27 different publishers. Now, if 27 different publishers turn you down, you're probably going to give up. But he kept persevering, and he became the greatest children's author of all time. Do you want to talk about Thomas Edison? Did you know that when Thomas Edison was a student, his teacher said, and I quote, that boy is too stupid to learn anything. He went on to hold more than 1,000 patents Inventing some practical, ingenious devices like the practical electrical lamp, the phonograph, and he even helped to invent the movie camera. R.H. Macy. 
had a series of failed uh, retail ventures before he started his department store, Macy's, one of the most affluent in all of the world. I'll just share two more. Vincent Van Gogh. Do you know how many paintings he sold in his life? He sold one painting in his entire career. During his life, the only painting he sold was a work called The Red Vineyard. And that was just months before he died. He went on to become one of the greatest maestros in art world history, producing tour de forces and magnum opuses all over the place. I like this one. There was one actor who was trying out for a movie role, and he got it. But after his first small movie role, an executive took him into his office and said, you are never going to make it in the movie business. His name was Harrison Ford, who went on to become Indiana Jones and Han Solo. I can't wait for episode six, directed by J.J. Abrams. I'm going to camp out for that one. Can't wait for Star Wars episode seven, my friends. That's going to be great. This is one of the laws of life. Like the law of gravity, whether you're a Christian or an unbeliever, this is something that the Lord has set up. That if you're going to accomplish great things for the kingdom of God as a mother, as a husband, as a businessman, as a Christian, then we have to be willing to take risks and not be pushed around by our fear of failure, but be led forth by our God-given inspirations. That like Paul the Apostle, we would say, I will not be disobedient to the heavenly vision. The difference between a great person and a dud is that the great person fails forward whereas the dud fails and turns back. What direction do you fail in? Usually when I fail, I say, I'm turning back, I'm done. The great says, I'm going to fail forward. Every mistake I learn from is one step toward the victory. Proverbs 24 verse 16 says, the righteous may fall seven times and rise again. Proverbs 14, verse 4 says, where there are no oxen, the trough is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. So what does that verse mean? I come from Oregon, so we have a lot of barns where I live. Now, I don't personally own a barn, but imagine if I did. Imagine if I took you to my Oregonian barn and I said, look at how clean my trough is. There are no cow pies. There are no pasture patties. It's so clean you could eat pancakes off the floor. This is the cleanest barn you'll ever see. Imagine if you said, wow, Ben, what's your secret? What if I said to you, well, I don't have any farm animals. I have no cows, no pigs, no roosters. They make too many messes. They leave their fur around and they smell bad. You would say, Ben, where no animals are, the trough is clean. But if you want increase, you got to put some farm animals. And that means you're going to have some messes. That's what Proverbs 14.4 is teaching. So often I say, I want a clean life where I don't make any mistakes and have no messes and never strike out so I'm never going to show up to the plate and I'm not going to have any farm animals. I'm not going to take risks as a husband. I'm not going to take risks as a parent. I'm not going to take risks as a Christian because I don't want any messes. You can have a clean barn, but where's the produce? Every person who has much increase also has much failure and many messes. So can I share with you my heart? I would rather be a failure than a coward. I would rather at the end of my life, during my funeral, I would rather that people say Ben was a failure, but at least he wasn't a coward. 
What kind of life do you want to live? The Lord has called us to the highest quality of life and the maximum quantity of joys. But as we'll see momentarily, some of the greatest Bible characters also had the greatest mistakes. So when the accuser of the brethren comes to us and says, you are never going to be a godly parent, you're never going to be an influential evangelist, you're never going to be a great storyteller, you're never going to really obey the Spirit of the Lord— we need to start trash-talking our fear of failure back when it whispers this accusation in our minds. Can I, can I tell you something? Did you know in the Bible, trash-talk is biblical? We need to start trash-talking our fears. What do you mean? You remember in 1 Samuel 17 when the little cheese-bearing shepherd boy with red skin and perhaps red hair as well, the Bible says he was ready when David went to the Israelites to deliver some dairy products to his brothers. And he saw the Philistine from Gath taunting the Israelite army. David said, and I quote, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? That was ancient trash talk back in that time. (laughs) Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? They say, that's Goliath. Everybody's too afraid to fight him. David says, well, I'll go pick up a few stones, take my sling, and I'm going to go take him on. First Samuel 17. When David showed up to the battlefield, do you remember that Goliath told him that he was going to fail? Goliath said, what am I, a dog, and you come at me with a stick? Remember, David had a really big stick for a really big dog. He came with his shepherd's staff. Goliath said, you're going to fail. Give me a real man to fight in this affair of honor. And this is what David said. And I quote, he looks up at Goliath and he says, In the name of the Lord, I will chop off your head and I will feed your body to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And when I lop off your head, everybody's going to know that there's a God in Israel today because you come at me with a sword, a javelin, and a spear, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. And when I oust you from our kingdom, everybody will know that the battle is not mine, but the battle is the Lord's. Then in 1 Samuel 17, verse 47 and 48, it says that David ran out to meet the Philistines. So after David trash talks that giant, the Bible says he runs straight toward Goliath. I used to picture David is just waiting for the giant to come to him as he whirls a slingshot. It's not what he does. This little trash-talking, red-headed, dairy-bringing shepherd boy is running toward Goliath while he's trash-talking him. He doesn't just face his fears. He chased his fears. When he was told he was going to fail, he said, it's not about who I am. It's about whose I am. It's not about how great or terrible I might be. It's who is the star player on my team. If God be for me, who can be against me? And when we have these fears speaking into our minds, telling us how much we failed, we need to start saying, I am not defined by my failure. I am defined by my response to who God says I am. And my God says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My God says he has a future and a hope toward me. My God God says that his thoughts toward me are more in number than the sands on the seashore. My God says I can do all things through him who strengthens me. My God says I can learn to be content in all things. My God says that what the enemy means for evil, he will mean for good. My God says that he will work all things together for the good because I love him and 
am called according to his purpose. My God says that he will supply all of my needs according to the riches of glory by Christ Jesus. My God says that he has given me everything I need for life and for godliness. My God says that as I pray without ceasing, as I ask, I will receive. As I seek, I will find. As I knock, the door will be open to me. My God says that if my earthly parents want to give me good gifts, how much more will the heavenly father give good gifts and the Holy Spirit to those who ask? My God says I am the apple of his eye. And because that's who my God says I am, I am not going to be defined by my failure. I'm going to be defined by my response to who the Lord says I am. People are not your dictionary. They don't define you. You have people in your life who tell you you failed. We all do. They ain't your dictionary. They don't give meaning to your life. God is the one who formed you in your mother's womb. He knit together your body in your mother's womb, Psalm 139 says, and all of your days were written in his book. He's the one who defines you. So we need to stop being bullied by our fear of failure. Because here's the deal. Have you ever noticed how our favorite Bible characters also were the greatest failures? When I ask people, who's your favorite Old Testament Bible character? Most of the time they say David. Why do we like David so much? It's not just because he was bomb.com, LTD, living the dream, man after God's own heart, inventing instruments, leaping over walls. The women sing about him. He kills tens of thousands of Philistine warriors. That's great. But the reason I think we really love David is because while he took risks and attempted great things for God, he also failed greatly when he tried to walk with God. I think it's true that it's, I heard somebody tell me this the other day. It's better to attempt great things for God and fail than to attempt small things for God and succeed. Sometimes we put limits on God and we say, I'm going to just play it safe and I'll succeed in playing it safe. I'm going to bunt every time I show up to the plate. It's better to attempt great things for God and fail than to attempt small things for God and succeed. How big is your God? As your pastor Rob would say, big enough, my friends. So attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. This is what David was doing all the time. One minute, David was killing mighty Goliath, but the next minute, he was killing his own mighty man, Uriah. One minute, he was taking off his clothes to dance in his undergarments. The next minute, he was taking off his clothes to do something very different with Bathsheba. One minute, he was saying in Psalm 3, verse 6, I will not be afraid of 10,000 people who have set themselves against me all around. The next minute, he numbers the Israelites when his own shady general Joab says, don't do it, David. Don't take a census. Don't estimate your greatness determined by how many people are living in your kingdom. And David numbered the people and an angel from the Lord wiped out many of his countrymen. It was David's greatest sin against God. One minute, David seems like the best, most all-star parent in the history of the Bible because he raised up a son named Jedediah, the beloved of God, otherwise known as Solomon, who was the wisest king in the history of the kingdom of Israel. He seems like the best parent ever. The next minute, he raises up a boy named Absalom, who was the Fabio of the Old Testament, had very long flowing hair. He was all hung up on his bride pun intended. And uh, he raised up Absalom, who started a civil war against his own dad. 
attempted a coup against his own father because the Bible says that David would not discipline Absalom. And then, did you know David raised up another boy named Amnon? Amnon had an incestuous relationship with his own sister Tamar and raped his sister. I mean, David was failing all over the place, but I would rather be a David than somebody who never took any risks. The only way to never fail is to never do anything great in life. Think about Peter. You remember one minute Peter in the New Testament takes out his sword and chops off Malchus's ear. And Jesus has to put the ear back on the guy's face. He says, put away your sword, please. The next minute, Peter takes out a different sword, the sword of the Spirit, in Acts chapter 2, and with the word of God, he saves 3,000 souls on the day of Pentecost as he pricks their conscience with the word of God. One minute, Peter's walking on water like it's a sidewalk. The next minute, he's sinking, and Jesus tells him he has such little faith. One minute, Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, I say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I no longer call you Simon, but Peter, Rocky, Dwayne Johnson. I now call you the rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And Peter gets his destiny and is praised before all the disciples. And then in that same chapter, the Bible says that when Jesus predicted his execution, Peter rebuked Jesus. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, there's one thing you never want to hear from Jesus. It's got to be pretty high on the list. One minute, he's trying to overshadow his disciples by debating who's the greatest. The next minute, his shadow's falling over people as he's healing those in the book of Acts who were afflicted with infirmity. One minute, he's running away from the cross. The next minute, he's embracing his own cross so much so that tradition tells us that when he was executed in Rome, he asked to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to die as his Lord. One minute, a little girl peer pressures him, and three times he says he doesn't know who Jesus is. The next minute in John 21, Peter says three times how much he loves Jesus. But wouldn't you want to be a Peter? Yes, he made so many messes but he had a lot of increase in his trough for the kingdom of God. We need to stop measuring our lives in terms of wins and losses and start measuring our lives in terms of wins and lessons. Because it ain't about how high you climb, it's about how high you bounce when you hit the bottom. So as we draw to a close, did you know that Jesus, when he... When he came onto the scene, at first, it seemed like he was prospering as he was bringing about the kingdom of God, and he would often preach about the kingdom of God, and the Jewish people said, here is our new king, he's going to oust Caesar, he's going to put Herod to flight, he is going to reign on the throne of God's chosen people, Israel. When Jesus came onto the scene, and he's feeding 5,000 people with some loaves and fishes, and 20,000 people approximately are following him in the wilderness. It seemed like Jesus was the ultimate success. He would have been voted the land's most interesting man. He would have been the favorite subject of the paparazzi. They were trying to elect him king. But Jesus 
when he got to the end of his life at 33 years old, when he rode on a donkey into Jerusalem, the people cried, Hosanna, which means save now. They were saying, now's your chance, king. Free us from the Roman Empire. Put to flight the Romans whose heel were under. Put to flight the predatorial watch of the eagle. You are the Christ. Now's your chance to achieve victory. Now, here's what you have to remember. The word Christ is Christos in the Greek, Messiah, Mashiach in the Hebrew. They both mean the same thing. The word Christ or Messiah means anointed one. So when you say Jesus Christ, you're saying Jesus anointed one. Why? Because in Jesus' generation, kings were made kings by anointing. Today, they swear on a Bible and are inaugurated into office. Back then, they would be anointed with oil, and then they were inducted into their kingship. So when they said, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah is coming, that had political overtones. So when Jesus rides into Jerusalem and they say, save now, and he instead says, love your enemies. My kingdom is not of this world. I'm not going to bring forth my Sakari dagger bears and nationalistic zealots to be a vindictive, vengeful, destructive, nationalistic Messiah like Alexander the Great, which is what you're expecting. I'm coming to declare peace, love, and Bobby Sherman. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. And sure enough, they were so upset with Jesus that they crucified him. They said, you're not our king. And when Jesus was crucified, you have to remember that crucifixion was a Roman punishment that was delegated to criminals and peasants. It was a sign that you had just been vanquished and quashed by the Roman Empire. Crucifixion was not even for Roman citizens. It was the most degradating death one could die. And when Jesus was crucified, it looked like he had failed. And yet, little did they know that when Jesus was overthrown by the Romans and all of his followers, save for John and a few women, had forsaken him, it seemed like he had lost. But this king said, my kingdom is not of this world My kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy. My kingdom is the place where God's will is done as perfectly on earth as it is in heaven. And I'm going to be a king who wears a purple robe, not of majesty, but of mockery. My cross is going to be the throne from which I rule. The sign above my head will not say Alexander, king of the Macedons, or Charlemagne, king of the Franks, or Napoleon, king of the French. It's going to say Jesus, king of the Jews, put there to mock me. My scepter is not going to be one of gold but they will give me a mock scepter of wood with which they will beat me over the head. I'm a king who doesn't wear signet rings on my fingers, but rather nails in my hands. I'm a king who doesn't wear a crown of gems, but a crown of thorns. I'm a king who doesn't demand that my subjects kiss my feet, but I wash the feet of my subjects. I'm the king who is not going to conquer the earth by bathing the world in the blood of my enemies. I'm going to conquer the earth by bathing my enemies in the world with my own blood. And there at the place of the skull, the king of kings put death to death so we don't have to be scared to death of death. There at Golgotha, the place of the skull, he crushed the skull of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. And what seemed the king's greatest failure was actually the place where he is declared by Paul the apostle, the king of kings. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father, whether in heaven 
heaven, on earth, or under the earth. This king has a kingdom that now includes 2.18 billion Christians around the world. What seemed his greatest failure, the cross, where he was overthrown by the Romans, was actually the place where he inaugurated the coming of the kingdom of God. And I want to tell you today that as you follow after Jesus, he can turn your greatest failures into your greatest victories. He can turn your worst tragedies into your greatest triumphs. He can turn your sorrow into joy. So I say when we hit rock bottom, we look to the rock of ages who will build a rock solid biography on our behalf so we can say, God, you rock. I may fail, but your love never fails. And that's what counts. No matter how much I fail, no matter how many mistakes you've made, I want to tell you that neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, neither life, nor death, nor any other created thing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, your Lord. So in your sphere of influence, be a risk taker, a game changer, and a world shaper because Jesus has called us to be more than conquerors as we follow in the footsteps of the King. Let's fear no failure because we are victories through the King of Kings who put death to death. Let's pray. Lord, we, we want to be victorious Christians. You didn't call us to live defeated. You called us to the highest quality of life. You said, I have come that you might have life in all of its abundance. And I pray that we would experience the power of your presence in our lives throughout this day, throughout this week, throughout our lives, encouraging us to trash talk our fears like David. Lord, I pray that where our barn is messy, there would also be much increase. I pray that where we have fallen seven times, we would know that we rise again. I pray that we would remember Psalm 37, 23 through 24, which says, even though we fall, we shall not be utterly cast down for the Lord upholds us with his right hand. So we want to praise you today that although we fail, your love never does. And that's what counts. In Jesus' name, amen.